At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. Each year, about 36,000 children in Florida are committed for psychiatric exams under the Baker Act. The 50-year-old state law was designed to help adults who are struggling with mental health issues. But schools have been using it to deal with unruly students. Parents have few rights when the Baker Act is invoked, and often it's school resource officers who make the call. Some students genuinely need help. Others have been committed because they made an off-color joke or struggle with learning problems like ADHD. Lynn Hatter is a Health News Florida reporter based at WFSU in Tallahassee. She produced a five-part series on the issue in December. I spoke to her via Zoom. Later, we'll hear from a state lawmaker who's working to address the issue. Lynn, starting off, just give me a brief explainer of exactly what the Baker Act is. So the Baker Act is what we use to send people for involuntary psychiatric exams. The Baker Act is actually a piece of paper, um, if you can imagine this. And it has sort of a, it's a questionnaire. Um, and you go through this questionnaire. And the idea is this will help you decide whether or not someone uh, needs to be sent for involuntary psychiatric evaluation. It has three primary criteria. It says if a person is unable or unwilling to consent for psychiatric evaluation, if they are a threat to themselves or others, um, and if they are showing signs of neglect or self-harm. And those are sort of the three requirements, and all three of them have to be met in order for someone uh, to be sent for an involuntary psychiatric evaluation. So how is the Baker Act then being used in schools vis-a-vis children? So the one big thing here is that children, they're legally unable to consent, right? So that strikes off sort of that one, that first requirement right there. Children do not have the legal rights to be able to consent for themselves, whether or not they need medical care. The way that it's being used right now um, is sort of the second one. Are they a threat to themselves or others? And that is really, really broad. And that can be used to suggest all kind of things. Um, one of the families that I interviewed in my reporting about the Baker Act, um, Beth Carr, her son made just a seriously bad joke. He said he liked the smell of gasoline. That ended up getting him Baker Acted. He was deemed a threat to himself and he was sent for an involuntary psychiatric evaluation. Another story that we hear frequently, um, especially when it comes to children with disabilities who may be acting out in school, throwing tantrums, throwing fits, they could be deemed a threat to others. Therefore, they end up being sent for psychiatric evaluations. And so there's a lot of scrutiny right now being placed on you know, this particular law and how it's being applied to children, especially in school settings. So in your reporting, a lot of a lot of it is based around this this number, 36,000 children in Florida schools every year who are committed under the Baker Act. How did you find that figure, that data, which shows that number? 
So in Florida, we actually track this. Um, the Baker Act Reporting Center down at the University of South Florida is actually the repository of this data, and they are tracking it based upon what law enforcement tells them, what schools are telling them, and they are sort of the aggregator of this. And, you know, that figure, 36,000 kids at the time of this story, um, that number has now gone up, by the way. But that amounts to basically the size of the Leon County School District, which is a medium-sized district in the state of Florida. So, you know, put that into context. We have basically an entire school district's worth of kids being sent for involuntary psychiatric evaluations each year. So when you look at that 36,000 number, uh, is there a significant trend toward children that are being committed, being referred for psychiatric care in terms of race, in terms of an income bracket, et cetera? Yeah. And these are things that we actually didn't get to get into in in our reporting, but there's definitely um, some issues here in terms of who is being committed. We do see a large number of children with disabilities. I think that was a feature of our reporting. And we also see a large number of kids who are black and brown. Um, And we know that, you know, we do have historical discrepancies in terms of who is sent for disciplinary actions in general. So it's not surprising that some of these things would also be applied to black and brown children. That's definitely a factor. And that's something that lawmakers are beginning to take a closer look at. The problem here is that schools want to be safe. And so how we go about addressing this is really tricky. And so you've seen these efforts over the past several years to try and rein in these numbers. But what you're running into is no one wants to be the next Parkland, right? No school wants to have that. And so there's a question of when do you take a threat of harm seriously? You know, how much leeway should be given to some of these concerns? And then another issue that you run into is the guilt factor. What happens if you don't act? What happens if perhaps that joke wasn't a joke? What happens if, you know, that tantrum was a sign of something deeper that you missed? And so there's a lot of hesitancy and a lot of concern about, yes, we know we need to fix this, but how do we fix this? It's often a school resource officers who are uh, police officers who are are making the call on these these commitments. And you talk to uh, Tim Enos, who's the head of the School Resource uh, Officers Association in Florida, and he said something interesting. He said that uh, officers are trained, but they're only trained to a certain level. He recognizes that they're not mental health therapists. They aren't school psychiatrists but they have a responsibility and they may be the only help that these students get. So I wonder what school districts and what the state are trying trying to do in terms of providing more mental health resources so that kids don't end up in this situation where they're, they're involuntarily committed for psychiatric care. So I, I really loved what, what Tim Enos had to say because I think that he, he hit the issue sort of on the head. I had um, a school district tell me, why would I call in a psychologist or someone else or even a mobile response team that has up to an hour to respond to a call when my school resource officer is right there? We have school resource officers 
in almost every single school in our state of Florida. You don't, you know who we don't have in every single school? We don't have psychologists in every single school. And so the officers have in many places sort of had to take on these, this multitude of roles that they're just really not equipped to handle. And I think you heard Officer Enos basically say that. So what the state has been trying to do in recent years is expand these mobile response teams to be special response, special responders to people who are experiencing a mental health crisis. But we don't have enough of them. Here in North Florida, we have a 13-county region, and I believe we have like three mobile response teams for 13 counties. And schools themselves have been trying to get more mental health professionals into their classrooms and into their schools, but these are psychologists who have years of training and they are not inexpensive. It is an expensive thing to have. And so what you see is school districts trying to create these partnerships with their local mental health providers. And that's great if you are a school in a county that has great mental health services, but not every county has those same capacities. So take something like here in North Florida where we have entire counties that have none of these things, then the officer becomes the default. And so you see in the data, and you can even look at this in the data where it shows in counties that have a lot of mental health services, the role of that SRO goes down. In counties that don't, the role of the officer goes up. And so who was referring um, people into the mental health system really largely depends on where you live and what resources you have available. What rights do parents have if uh, their child is, is taken in under the Baker Act? Well, you get a phone call. And if your child is in school when this happens, you'll get a phone call, usually after they've been taken away. Um, in fact, one of the most interesting points to me as I was reporting this is um, the the incident that happened over in Jacksonville, where um, the six-year-old child was sent for an involuntary um, psychiatric exam. I actually had the opportunity to talk to her mother, Martina Falk, and she says she missed the first call from the school because she was at work. She said she called them back immediately, and that's when they told her that she basically had to meet her daughter over at the local mental health hospital, and that's where <laughs> she was taken. And so, you know, you hear this frustration of parents who say, if only I had been given a chance. Because it is involuntary, parents don't get a say. It's involuntary for a reason. And the idea is, you know, this is an emergency. This person has to go. Parents have very little say, if any. Now, there are provisions in the law that say, hey, you should be actively reaching out to parents and trusted caregivers and giving them a chance to intervene. But that's applied sparingly. That does not often happen. And I know, you know, from experience from people who've called me afterward, there are incidences where, you know, children are taken from homes and Baker acted. Perhaps something happened in the neighborhood and a concerned neighbor called. The family had no idea what was going on until the police showed up at their doorstep. 
and then their child was taken away. They still had no control. No, you can't ride in the police car, but you can meet them at the hospital. And so, you know, parents have very little rights when this when it comes to this. And that's actually a point of of contention. Um, and you've been seeing parents for years fighting, trying to get a greater say in what at least happens to their kids. And we should emphasize again that the Baker Act is a law that was written with adults in mind. It was not written to be an instrument of child welfare or child protection. No. And you can see that in the law, you know, going back to this issue of, you know, a person rejects or is not able to consent for treatment. That does not apply to children at all. That's because again, they legally can't consent. And so here you have a law that was never built for children being applied to children. Um, and, and this is something that lawmakers have gone back and forth over over the years. In fact, um, Democratic Senator Lauren Book is out right now just this week. She filed her second attempt to try to bring about some changes to the Baker Act. So I know we have Lauren Book's bill and we're going to talk to her uh, uh, later on in the show. But there have been multiple attempts, as you say, Lynn, to reform this law over the years and they really haven't gone very far in the legislature. What What's the roadblock that lawmakers keep running up against in terms of making changes to this law? So this is actually really interesting. There had been momentum to fix this. Um, there was a 2017 state report that basically said, hey, guys, we have a problem with this Baker Act, um, especially when it comes to children. And you saw lawmakers like Senator Gail Harrell, um, Senator Book out with proposals to try and bring about and actually fix this. And there was a lot of hope that 2018 would be the year. But what happened in 2018? Parkland. Parkland happened in 2018. And all of those efforts basically came to a full stop. We went from, you know, trying to fix this mental health system to actually pouring more money into the mental health system to address kids in crisis. But there's an argument that says perhaps we swung the pendulum way too far. Um, and the reason I kind of put an asterisk by that 36,000 number that we used early on in the show is because the Thursday um, that we were running this series, the state released new numbers for the 2018-19 school year. And that was the year after we passed the Parkland bill. And we saw the number of kids being Baker Acted go from 36,000 up to about 37,000 um, and some change. And so a year after Parkland, what happened, we saw a 5% increase in the number of kids being Baker Acted. Do we know anything about how the Baker Act has been used with regards to children in the past year when schools have been closed, mostly closed and, and, and virtual because of the pandemic? We actually don't yet. And that's a really good question. Um, we have anecdotal um, stories, but we have no numbers yet because there's a massive data lag. Um, I have talked to several people who are very concerned that children are in crisis. But the one thing that's important to remember here is that schools are usually where those crises show up. And because schools have been closed and students have been learning remotely, 
there are no mandated reporters anywhere around to really be able to kind of fully lay eyes on those kids. And so you see this across the board where the number of children being referred to DCF services has gone down. The number of kids being referred for mental health services has gone down. All indicators suggest that the number of kids being referred to outside services has dropped during the pandemic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the issues have gone away. And all of the researchers I talked to are expecting to see some growth in the numbers. They're either expecting to see a growth in the numbers of outside referrals or an overall decrease in the numbers because they're just not enough eyes being placed on kids now because some are in school, some are not. A lot of people have moved away. But what we do know is that the issues have not gone away. What got you interested to report on this? Ah, that that is actually... A very good question. This this story um, actually has a very personal beginning for me. My nephew has um, attention deficit disorder um, and a hyperactivity disorder. And about two years ago, I was visiting my mom in Atlanta, and she got a call from his school. And the principal said, "You know, you guys need to get here immediately." Um, my nephew had thrown a massive fit. I'm talking about chairs being thrown. <laughs> um, the teacher had to clear the room of the rest of the kids. Uh, it's called a room clear. Um, and, you know, we got there and and he was just completely melting down. And we got there about three minutes before the police officers showed up. My nephew was eight years old. And had we not beat the police there, um, he probably would have been involuntarily committed. And this was something that kind of sat on my heart and sat on my heart and sat on my heart. And so in February of last year, when I saw the story of what happened to Nadia King in Jacksonville, I thought about my nephew. And, you know, the the part that really drew me in is how can you know that a student has a disability and this be the outcome. My nephew's disabilities are well-documented. Nadia King's disabilities were well-documented, and I couldn't help but see my nephew in that child. And so that's what started me down the road of really looking at this thing and trying to figure out what is happening and what's going on. And, you know, the question that my editor asked me, and this is something that also really stuck, stuck with me, she said, well, who, whose fault is it? Who is the villain in the story? Who is to blame? And one of the questions that I asked everybody, and I asked that question to everybody I interviewed, I asked it of parents, I asked it of professionals. And, and everybody said no one and everyone at the same time. No one is to blame and everyone is to blame because schools are overwhelmed. Parents are overwhelmed. Even now, as we're growing our mental health infrastructure, the infrastructure is still overwhelmed. And so this is not something that you can solve with a magic wand or a silver bullet. It's going to take a lot of work. And I think, too, that there there is a recognition that the Baker Act is needed. No one has said we need to get rid 
of the Baker Act, or by extension, the Marchman Act. No one has said that. They have said we need to try and fix it. We need to try and change it. But there is a recognition that it's needed. But the question is, how do we make it so that it's not overused? How do we make it more targeted? And how do we give people an opportunity to intervene when they can? Um, and so, you know, this 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 project was really sort of born of something of me feeling powerless at the time and wanting to try and do something so that if one more family could avoid something like this, then to give them an opportunity to avoid something like this. But I recognize that the teachers are not the villains. The principals are not the villains. The people responding to the calls are not the villains. We have a lot of environmental and social problems that are deeply effective to children. And so these are things that we're going to continue to see. The question is, how do we make it better? Well, hopefully this uh, reporting can uh, start us on the path of, of making it better. Thank you so much for your work, and, and thanks for uh, talking to us about it today. Thank you guys for having me. That was Health News Florida reporter Lynn Hatter. She's based at WFSU in Tallahassee. And you can find her five-part series, Committed, Children and the Baker Act, at WUSFnews.org. Coming up, what's being done to fix the Baker Act? I'm Bradley George. This is Florida Matters. You're listening to Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. Mental health advocates have been calling for changes to the Baker Act for years, But those calls haven't gone far. Proposals to reform the law have been introduced in the state legislature, but none have made it to the governor's desk. State Senator Lauren Book is hoping to change that. The Plantation Democrat chairs the Senate Committee on Children, Families, and Elder Affairs. She recently introduced a bill to reform the Baker Act. I spoke with her via Zoom. Just starting off, can you just give me just a brief overview of, uh, of this bill that you're sponsoring that would uh, reform the Baker Act? So that is hard to do, <laughs> but um, this, uh, it's a, a reimagination, a re kind of look at the Baker Act. It hasn't been rewritten or looked at really since the 70s. Um, and so it's a really thorough look at the Baker Act and how we kind of how we utilize um, this as a tool for those who are in need. Uh, specifically, what would it change with, uh, with regards to uh, children being Baker Acted? Well, I think this is a really big issue um, and something that we're constantly working through because we want to make sure that children are kept safe no matter what. Um, and so we've, we've, kind of, we've had several iterations of the bill thus far, and we want to make sure that children um, are being met where they are. Um, a lot of times children are baker acted from their school environment and so that they're being kept safe while doing that, that it's not necessarily a school resource officer or a law enforcement officer, that it's being done in a trauma for a trauma centric way so that we're doing it, um, you know, no one's being handcuffed, no one's being dragged into, you know, to, to where they're going. Um, so it's done in a really sensitive way, um, but it's a really a wonderful modernization, I think, of kind of where we are and where we need to go in terms of mental health and substance abuse. You've uh, sponsored uh, previous attempts to, to to reform this law. There have been other attempts through the years by other lawmakers. Where do you think maybe this one will succeed where where those others weren't able to to, to get through the legislative process? 
You know, I think that we've been working on this for a long time. Um, this is actually, I think, the second or third time that we're going to be trying to do this um, modernization of, of the Bay Garage. And we've been working and doing a lot of groundwork. Um, Judge Leifman in Miami, who set up, um, you know, mental health court, has been working with us um, all along the way. We've been talking with stakeholders and taking into account all of the different pieces, like you brought up, um, you know, when children are concerned. What does that mean when they're in schools? What does that mean? Are we, you know, taking children in? Are they going to adult facilities? How do we address all of these nuanced concerns that that really exist? And how do we make sure um, that we're being um, sensitive to all of those different parts? And so um, the mental health system is quite complex and how do we address all of the needs that exist? And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we've um, kind of struck, we've stricken a balance here um, and that we will um, we'll be successful. And I know that, you know, this is something certainly that we had been working with in our session, in our, in our committee last year, um, and worked through and worked with the different members. And so I'm hoping that we're able to do the same thing now. And you have a, a companion bill that's sponsored by uh, State Representative Pat Maney, a Republican. How would you gauge kind of the, the, the level of bipartisan support for, for taking on this issue in the upcoming session? You know, I think that everyone understands that this is a highly complex issue, one that certainly has not been um, reimagined, if you will, in many, 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 many years. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, all of us know and understand that the that mental health challenges um, are, are here, they're not going anywhere, um, and that we really do need to take a different approach than what existed in the prevailing knowledge that existed in the 70s, right? And so um, we're, we're in a different time, we're in a different place, and how do we make sure that we're, we're being um, as sensitive as we can to these challenges? Because any, any one of us um, you know, can, can suffer with mental health issues, and we want to make sure that no matter where you are, no matter what you, you know, you know, where you come from in the state, that, that there's a system in place and that you can be taken care of and that no one falls through the cracks. What about funding for mental health? Because we know that you and your fellow lawmakers are gonna face some difficult decisions with regards to the state budget. Is, that, is, is behavioral health something that, uh, that could be ten, potentially cut uh, as, as you're looking to, to close the budget shortfalls that the state is facing? You know, I think that certainly we're in a very difficult time. I do, though, know and believe that our our um, that our leadership in both um, chambers really do place a strong a strong stake in mental health. Um, you know, all of us going through this pandemic, we've certainly come to understand and realize that um, everyone needs a little bit of help, right? And we've come to different ways of getting it, which I think is wonderful. Um, telehealth certainly. Um, is and has come a long way in terms of how people can access some of these services and really needed mental health services. So I think, you know, while certainly we're in a difficult budgetary time, I do believe that um, both the president and the speaker put a lot of stake in, in these areas and want to make sure that people are getting what they need, but also keeping an open mind to making sure that no matter how somebody needs to access those services, that they're able to do so. So I think that that's a a good, you know, a good way of approaching the issue. And again, you know, things might be difficult, but I do believe that we're going to usher forward and hoping that everybody gets what they they need in this space, because 
at the end of the day, anyone, any one of us are just, you know, one step away from really needing to reach out and, and seek some of those services. And so I think that there's a real understanding that that's where we are today. Senator, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good day. Lauren Book is a Democratic state senator from Plantation. She chairs the Senate Committee on Children, Families, and Elder Affairs. There's a companion bill to her proposal in the Florida House. It's sponsored by Republican Representative Pat Maney. We reached out to Representative Maney for comment and did not hear back. And a reminder, you can find Lynn Hatter's series on the Baker Act at WUSFnews.org. That's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for listening.